Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 10-13-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you so much for this time we have this evening. We, we're grateful for those who have joined and those who may still yet join. We pray for wisdom as we approach your word. Uh, we pray that the passages we uh, delve into tonight, that you will give us understanding about what they are and what is meant by those words. So we thank you for this group we have, Father. We pray for them. Uh, there's illnesses among us. Uh, you know what e what each person has, Father, and is ailing them, and we're praying for them, Brenda and Fred and Dad and all those who are sick among us, Kenny and uh, the Haddon family, praying for Mike and his family as well, uh, and their church. So we're asking all these in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, Amen. you know our normal course of study is in Romans chapter 9. Uh, so we are looking at uh, before us, two verses, 9, 30, and 31. If we get to, I don't know, there's a lot of notes here, but it, I think it's, I don't know if it's really a lot. It looks like a lot, but um, we'll see how far we get. No rush to get through them. We just take our time and hopefully absorb what God wants us to know from these verses. And um, uh, we'll do that, and we'll just pause for a minute to see if there are any uh, thoughts out there before we begin. <clears throat> the floor is open. Uh, yes. Um, I have a, um, I guess, a question um, taken from Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And um, 4, 432, it states, all the believers... Uh, were in heart and mind, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Um, so I was reading some commentary. This, there, there are other verses that go forward, talking about all the needy persons. Among them, there were none. They met all the believers um, needs, they sold houses, they brought money and placed them at the apostles' feet. Um, so I was reading the commentary. I'll just read what the commentator. Many argue that this sharing of goods was a temporary phase of life in the early church. It was not intended to be an example to us. Such reason only exposes our spiritual poverty. If we had the power of Pentecost in our hearts, we would have the fruits of Pentecost in our lives. So that commentary seems to indicate that this was spurred on by the power of the Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit coming upon his people and many coming into the church. And so my question is, was is this intended this spirit that resonated in the early church 
intended to carry over into a practice that should be should have gone forward to today. Well, that's a pretty good question, Fred. I didn't think of that, but yeah, no, it's. I would say that's a one to ponder. Um, so the early church. So one thing we we know about the early church is um, it was new. So being new, God uh, had to establish the early church based on authority. And if you look at, uh, there are not just one Pentecost in Scripture, that is in Acts chapter two. There's also that was that's really primarily for Jews that. Pentecost. It was really for Jews and converts to Judaism. But if you look at Acts chapter 8, you find that there was a Pentecost for Samaritans. And uh, then if you look at Acts chapter 10 and 11, you find that there is the Pentecost that dealt with Gentiles. So there were, it really, the story is, is there was three Pentecosts in, in the book of Acts, if you read it. But really, um, the church began with the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and there were mostly Jews there uh, and converts to Judaism. So why did God um, have these other Pentecosts? He could have just said, okay, everybody received the baptism of the Spirit, and if you're now saved in this age, you should get it. But he didn't do it that way. So he established the church based on the authority of the apostles. So if you know the apostles were involved in the Pentecost, obviously all of them, in Acts chapter 2, but in Acts chapter 8, uh, the Samaritans did not receive the Spirit, which is a sign of the new age, until they came and laid their hands on them. And then in Acts chapter 10, same thing, the Gentiles were saved, but they had not received the spirit. So it wasn't until Peter came and uh, before they received the spirit. So all of that is to say that God was orchestrating uh, this new entity by uh, the authority of the apostles. He wanted them to make sure that they uh, were one from that standpoint. But now, so the early church was small. Let's just say it this way. And there were, it really wasn't large uh, when we think about what the church is today. Today, the church is in every, I would just venture to say that in every nation, there are probably believers. And there's no way to know who's a believer in, in many cases. Uh, as the church expanded in the early church, that was so even then. It was true, and people didn't know, even when Saul came along, and he turned, changed his name to Paul, some suspected, wait a minute now, I don't know if he's really uh, a believer or not, and so they questioned, and, and that's, the, that's the way it went. They even questioned Paul's apostleship, the Corinthians did, they said he was stealing money from them. There's a lot of things that went on. But it expanded. The church grew. And there was no way that you could 
you know, have a one common group of people in one locale. There were missionary journeys. Uh, you could track the missionary journeys that Paul went on. And he went to all these different places. And um, even with all those places, the churches were all throughout Asia, which is now um, regions in Turkey and all throughout that region. Paul established churches, the Corinthian church, um, Thessalonians, Philippians, all those books that we have are peoples, bodies of people that Paul established. So there's eventually, and those churches grew within their own locale, and it just became uh, way too much for uh, the church to continue in, the, in that way. The early church had some advantages as well. They were a church under persecution. So it was not like today you, you ride down the, the road and there's a big billboard sign and it says, you know, Jesus died for your sins. Come to our church on, here's our pastor and here's the number. It wasn't like that because the church was underground. They were being persecuted. So it was a small body of people that if they didn't depend on each other, they would not survive. It, it, you had Jews who, who, you know, spoke up and confessed Christ publicly. For, and once they did that, they were ostracized and shunned from their families. And uh, shunned means you were put out of the synagogue and most likely whatever job you had will probably shun you from that as well. So it could be you would be destitute. And the church took care of people um, in its infancy. But as the church grew, there's just no way, I don't think, that that could be sustained. It just wasn't possible. And if you look at the same for Israel, um, when Israel was new, it was led by Moses. But after a while, they, you know, it got too much for Moses. And Moses was running around like a chicken with his head cut off. That's probably a bad analogy. <laughs> he... he he could not handle it. So what did they do? They appointed uh, people who could help Moses run the nation. Same thing with the church. They appointed elders. This is where we get Stephen from. Stephen was somebody, because of the size and the number, it got too much for the apostles. They began to appoint people to help uh, administer in the church. And that's exactly what happened. And Stephen was one of those people. It wasn't just somebody who was uh, you know, waiting on tables. He was somebody who knew, obviously, you can read his testimony in Acts chapter 7. He knew the word of God and was a tremendous testimony to those who were there. So, so, so all of that to say, I don't think it would have been sustainable if you look at what, what's happening here in Acts chapter 4. Uh, they had everything in common. Believers were one heart, one mind. And this is Acts 4.32 I'm reading from. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And remember Ananias and Sapphira, right? What was it that they did? They, they told them they sold their property and they kept some of the money. And uh, But 
And it would have been fine for them to keep some of the money and turn over whatever they wanted to the Lord. But they lied and said, well, we sold it. Here's all the money. We, they were trying to make a name for themselves and get some, obviously, some status in the church. That seems to be the intent. Why would they lie otherwise? So they lied, and obviously God dealt with them very severely. Um, so, and then it goes on to say, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all uh, that there were no needy persons among them, for from the time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money. He put it at the, disciple, the apostles' feet. So this was... This happened in the early church. This is what uh, I think was part of the glue that kept the early church together and, you know, allowed us to have a firm foundation uh, to go out and be able to stand where we are today with the wisdom that God has given us. So, yeah, I think it was in the church's infancy. And just like you might say, uh, there were temporary spiritual gifts. Those temporary spiritual gifts were given for a time. So why were those gifts given? Why did God give the temporary spiritual gifts? To guide the church in its infancy. There was no written canon of scripture. There was no uh, written word of God to direct the church. Uh, and the church was brand new. How it in, and, and if it wasn't under the law, so what would be uh, the modus operandi of the church if they didn't have any written word, right? Well, they had the apostles, and the apostles committed uh, what God, the Holy Spirit, had given them to writing. This is what we have of the New Testament or the Word of God today. So there were a lot of things that were different in the early church, we can understand. Uh, because of its infancy, Paul uses the analogy, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. But when I became a man, I put child, I, uh, childish ways I behind me. Sure, um, you know, clearly, uh, I can see. Paul, were you still talking about? Yeah, it's okay. Good. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I thought you had paused. No, it's good. I messed that up. No, go right ahead. But I love that answer. Um, um, I can see without the Holy Spirit was at work with the apostles and, uh, you know, making sure as the numbers were greatly being increased in the church. This is God, the Holy Spirit, who was at work making sure the, uh, I, you, you pointed all these fact pieces together to make sure for this church. And, uh, I can see it. I love that answer. So thank you. Yeah, and I thanks. I thank you for the question because what we uh, do want to make sure is that we make a distinction between what happened in the early church and what's going on uh, at this point where we have uh, some maturity. Uh, 
So people might say, well, that's good, and all these... And they look at Acts, a lot of people look at Acts as, you know, the standard for what church behavior should be. And really, Acts is a transitional book. And what we have there is a lot of problems in the early church. We haven't, we talked about a lot of the things that were good. We also must talk about the things that were not so good. It was racism and prejudice and all sorts of things going on in the early church. Gentiles and Jews did not want to be in the same body together. That it was God the Father's design, that's part of his eternal purpose, but <laughs> they did not want to the Jews did not want to give up the Mosaic law. Even though they believed in Jesus Christ, they wanted to maintain the standard of the Mosaic law, which was certainly not the rule for for the church. Um, so we can see that the infancy had its good things about it. It also had things that were not so good. And so we got to make sure we note where we are now and what God has uh, called us to uh, as far as the church is concerned. I will pause. Other thoughts out there? Before we get into Romans. All right, so let's do that. Let's move into Romans. You should have notes. I'm pulling mine up as we speak. Thanks for the question and the thought. Um, so Romans chapter 9. Well, we got two verses left in Romans if we get through tonight, which I don't know that we will. But <laughs> through Romans chapter 9, there are two verses. So what you may know, you may not know, is that once I finish a chapter, then I will uh, send my notes along for that whole chapter to everyone. And then eventually, once wherever we're going is finished, let's say it's a whole book, then I will send the whole of all of my notes. So you'll have them in order, just the way I have them, and not so much an email, but you'll have them literally in a Word document and um, all in one place, the notes for, for as it is, each chapter. So Romans chapter 8, there's notes for Romans chapter 7, there's notes for... So hopefully... Um, now, we only started doing notes on Wednesdays on Romans chapter 7. So they don't go back all the way to Romans in the beginning. I wish I did, but I didn't record notes. But, but for now, we are going to uh, use the notes as documentation as well. You can easily go back and reference any scripture that we covered. And what did we say about it? Uh, what were some of the points? What were some of the other scriptures? You can use this as a a reference as well. So anyway, all I have to say that's those that whole Romans chapter nine will be coming soon, as we only have two more verses after we finish these two. So anyway, back to our notes. Um, Romans nine it says uh, thirty and thirty one. What then shall we say? that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued, pursued, it, uh, pursued the law as a way 
of righteousness have not attained their goal. So that these are some pretty good uh, thoughts. So let's let Paul develop them. So let's draw some conclusions at this point. Aside from the judgments that have been a part of Israel's history, we could discuss the reasons for their discipline. God's objective is not to cause Israel to suffer. Quote, no, discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's unquote. That's Hebrews 2.11. God goes to the root of their issue here. They certainly failed God, yes, but their failure did not cause God to reject his people, Israel. To me, it's amazing that God chose Israel uh, and eventually all that for all that Israel did, I mean, all the adopt that's what we call spiritual adultery by you know adopting other practices and the gods of other nations. They got involved in so many different things uh, in terms of their disobedience to the law. God could justly, in my opinion, have wiped them out, but God is not like we are. God is faithful. And he has a purpose for Israel, and he will fulfill that purpose. Israel will succeed. That's what we, Romans 9 should tell us. Yes, there's going to be discipline. We just came through about four or five verses that dealt with discipline uh, that will be happening to Israel. And it spoke of Israel's discipline in the past and their restoration. So we, we got to make sure we see the point that's being made here. I think it's important that we do. If we don't, I think we'll, we'll be missing out on some of the main points of what God is trying to tell us in Romans chapter 9. Israel will be restored. God will continue his eternal purpose. So let's, let's get into the notes here. Point number one, what shall we say then? Uh, what then shall we say? And my thought first thing is, well, say to what? So in the, the context in this case is to follow. In other words, it, since he says what he's going to say, how can I perhaps add any clarity to that when God said, when it says it right there? What, should, what then should we say? Well, then he goes on and says that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Well, that's what he, he's, that's a conclusion that he's making, but it's more of a root cause conclusion. How come Israel is in the place they're in? Why are they under discipline? And the answer is because they've had a history of disobedience. Not just what happened with Christ, but a history of it that the apostle can point back to and show where they have not been faithful to God. They have not kept the covenant that God called them to. So that's a thought to consider. Uh, so as I said before, Israel is on dangerous ground when they start questioning the Father's eternal purpose. As you know, 
we've talked about sovereignty. And Israel called God out. They said, God, if you allow the church to go forward, and if this is what your stance is, then we're going to say, foul. The word of God has failed. We're saying that you can't be trusted. That you now are switching, as we would say, in midstream here. And you are choosing these Gentiles and you are totally disregarding your covenant that you have with the Jews. And we explain that by means of the mystery. And understanding how uh, through the mystery, God has put Israel on pause, as it were, a computer analogy. And so they're still there. It's almost like they're frozen in time. And God, what is he doing now? He's calling out many sons into glory. Now, a lot of people, I just have to say this about Romans 9. A lot of people, since they don't necessarily understand the mystery. Now, when I say the mystery, listen, the mystery is revealed. It is not something that is inscrutable or not understandable. But Paul continues to use the term mystery to keep people focused on that which was hidden in from the Jews, from Israel, and from everybody in the Old Testament. And it's, he basically says was hid in God. Nobody knew about the mystery. Angels didn't know about it. So we've been talking about it here a lot. And we make sure, like Paul says in Romans 3, 2, surely you have heard about the dispensation of grace which was given to me for you. That is the mystery. We make sure you heard about it. Just like Paul is saying there in Ephesians 3, 2, and 3. So other people, other churches may not make this a point of, of record to say that this is what is going on. So as a result of that, they when they look at Romans chapter 9, they don't understand that God paused Israel and that God is calling out many sons into glory and that we're in the church age now and all. So they don't associate these scriptures in the same way because they don't have the understanding of what we just said about the mystery. So as a result, this gets butchered. Chapter 9 gets butchered. They don't see that God's eternal purpose is now being made known and that he has revealed the thoughts and intents of his heart. They don't realize that that happened. And so they just relate everything that he says to our glorious salvation. And they don't see a, any purpose beyond salvation to assign Romans 9 to. So there's been terrible things that they have said about Romans chapter 9, and it caused great division in the body of Christ. And when I say that, I mean uh, people are divided about whether they are Reformed in nature or whether they are Arminian, or some have tried to harmonize both uh, uh, you know, positions and say, well, I'm not either, I'm not a five-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point Calvinist, or I'm a this. And there's all these things going on where they, most of them have come from the misapplying scripture in Romans chapter 9. 
So if you have been following with me all this time, we've been going through Romans 9 verse by verse, taking our time, trying to make sure we understand what is being said. And not from just Romans 9 alone, we've gone from Romans 8, and, and which I think prompts Romans 9. Then you have uh, the responsibility to check to make sure that what we are saying makes sense. That's what I'm doing with the others interpretations out there. I'm checking to make sure whether or not they are on target or not. Well, you have to do the same thing with our teaching as well. I'm saying you have to literally look into this. I mean, it could be like, I trust you <laughs> and you and what you've done. That's fine. And I appreciate that. However, for you to know this for yourself, you got to go through the verses and you have you, you have to take it upon yourself to understand what has been happening here in these verses. So, with that said, we're going to just jump right in and talk about uh, Romans 9. I don't want to appear as though you don't have a say or this is the only interpretation. I want, I want us to see this in the light of what we have been seeing as far as God's eternal purpose. And that's where we are. So, so let's get into it. This is point A. It's, so, well, say to what, right? So what then shall we say? Say then to what? The context is this case, uh, is in this case, is what we follow. And that, that is how we're going to understand anything. When Paul stops and makes a statement like this, well, what then shall we say? Well, what do we say? You know, we have to understand that he is at a point of conclusion here. He's made a lot of points, but now he stops and says, now let me sum some things up for you. That's what's going on. So let's see what he has to say. The, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. That's what Paul thinks uh, to make a conclusion out of. And we'll get to why he says that as we dig into the verse. Point B, the previous context could determine what conclusions Paul comes to. But we must let the writer make the point. So many times we could stop short of what Paul means, or we could say too much and go beyond what Paul means. But the best way to understand what Paul is saying is to let Paul tell us. That's what we're going to do. We're going to let the writer make the point. I don't know, it sounds very simplistic, but... Uh, but that's that's simply what the way we're going to approach it. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, just a minute. Resuming. So, so we're in our notes, and we had some difficulties, technical. But we're in our notes, we're, we're in one, and we're looking at point C now. Uh, so it is important... To follow the context to determine the conclusions made. Why the re, uh, reminder at this point? And this is why we talked about this earlier before we got started. Because many have made false conclusions from this chapter. And I say many, I mean many. So now it could be that people will not see the value of what we're doing in chapter 9 until they feel uh, pressured to, you know, by somebody who is, you know, talking about some point in Romans 9 and 
using Romans 9 to back it up, and this is why they're saying it. Uh, and then, so you'll have uh, an answer. Like it says, Peter says that we ought to have an answer for the, uh, to, to, to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is within us. We should have an answer. And this is our answer to say what God has uh, revealed to us in Romans 9. But remember, this is not something where you can't contribute or say, well, what about this? I don't understand that point. Why did you say this? And why, is, why does he say that? All of, the, all of that is fair game because we don't want to just teach Romans 9. It is a critical chapter, whether you know it or not, because of all the controversy surrounding it. So we take our time and we, we go through the verses like, as we've done. Let's move on. Let's see what does he say. Point number two, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. So the first point there is Gentiles did not pursue righteousness righteousness. Well, let's talk about that. I should ask, why did the Gentiles not pursue righteousness? Some things to note here. So what does it mean? What does Paul mean when he says the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness? So the first thing is, uh, the Gentiles are being compared with the Jews here. That We got to know that, right? So all you got to do is look at the second half of the verse or the next verse, and it talks about that um, it compares the Jews with the Gentiles about obtaining this goal of, of being justified or right with God. The Jews pursued that, as we're going to find out, the wrong way. And somehow, Paul is saying the Gentiles obtained it. Now, he's not talking about all Gentiles. Obviously, he's talking about Gentiles who are in Christ. All the, all the Gentiles, if they're not in Christ, then there is none righteous, not even one. So Gentiles in and of themselves are not righteous, but he's only talking about the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles that are here. Because the, remember, the Jews are the ones objecting to uh, the Gentiles being in the same body with them or being called and chosen. And all of that. They object to that. They're saying, no way. You can't be dealing with the Gentiles. You should be dealing with the Jews. We're the chosen people. So Paul is bringing out a point here. Sort of some irony here. But let's look at what he's trying to say. Gentiles are being compared with Jews. So the Gentiles, here point number two in our notes. The Gentiles did not uh, pursue righteousness in the way the Jews did. Well, that, that's going to be the difference in why the Gentiles are justified. Well, now, all this said, we should know that we are not Gentiles once we're in Christ. In Christ, there is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We are all one in Christ. So, But for Paul's purposes here, he is calling out the Gentile, uh, the, the culture of a person who is Gentile, as opposed to the culture of a person who is Jew, who is in Christ. Right, so that's the point he's trying to make. So he's using the term Jews and Gentiles. Point number three. The distortion of the law by the Jews led them to pursue God's righteousness or justification by means of the law. Now this is an important point. right? It's the distortion of the law. right? The law does have a good purpose. God intended 
to be used to bring people to the knowledge of their condemnation, of their need of a Savior. That helps them understand the bad news. So the law was important. And secondarily, the law was a way of life for the Jew. It was not. It was never a way of life for the Gentile. But for the Jew, yeah. It, not only did the, were the Jews to, supposed to be saved by grace in the Old Testament, but the Jews were to live under the dictates of the law. They were, they were under the law. As it's talking about, right, like Paul says, for you are not under the law, we're under grace. Well, the Jews certainly were under the law from the standpoint of, of living their lives. They had to obey the law in all of its precepts. Pre, well, I say had to. In other words, it was upon them to do that. So that's important. They distorted the, the purpose of the law. That's what we need to understand. And what, what, what was their intent in this distortion? What, why were they doing this? Why were they distorting the law? I mean, God gave the law. He told them, you know, about salvation. They understood animal sacrifices, you know, the innocent animals substituting for them. And he taught grace to them, but, but they also were under the law. But they, upon themselves, distorted this into a system of righteousness. In other words, we're right with God. God's accepted us because of our, uh, the fact that we have the law and we're attempting to obey it. None of them ever obeyed the law perfectly. So that was not possible, and it did not happen. But the Jews uh, began to grade on the curve. They said, well... Nobody's perfect, so but the fact that we're trying, God, you you recognize us for that. So, so that's this is the point: the distortion of the law by the Jews, which led to them to pursue God's righteousness, which is justification, or we could even say salvation by means of the law. So let's look at this Romans three nineteen and twenty. Now you know this verse; we covered it so many times with the bad news, but I, re I want you to really see this point. So Romans three nineteen says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So remember, there are two aspects of the law when we think about it. One, the law is helping everybody understand the righteous demands of God upon us. And by the time we look at the law and we realize that we fall short of those righteous demands, then the point is we need a Savior. And there Christ stands on the horizon. He says, I'm here. I'm the Savior of the world. Whosoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. But the law has nothing to do with us being saved other than to point out that we are lost. Later, we're going to get into scriptures that talk about that the law is also called the ministry of condemnation or the ministry of death. We will read those and we'll say, wait a minute, why is that? Well, it's because that, you know, th that aspect of the law where everybody is held accountable. In other words, if you read earlier, it talks about there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who do good. And all of this stems from his 
verse, uh, his point in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Well, the law helps people know that. That's what it says, that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. <clears throat> so verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. So this is what the Jews thought. This Here we're talking about the distortion. This literally is what Jews thought, that they could become righteous because of the works of the law. Them attempt, their attempts at doing what the law says. Now, this is not really different from the way a lot of people think today who are Gentiles. They think that their standing before God is dependent on their Christian conduct. Now, salvation is free. Obviously, we're not in a place to barter with God and say, well, God, I'll give you this if you give me some salvation. If you give me this, if you give me some righteousness, I'll give you some good works. We're not in the position because we're dead. It says we're condemned. God has already made a... The gavel has slammed down and God has already said condemned before we're even born. So it's not about what we do. We're already lost when we're born. That's why it says none's righteous, not even one. So, so verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of law. This, for Gentiles, they'll say, oh... <laughs> So that's how it works. For Jews, this is like a slap in the face, literally, because this is exactly what they were doing. They were trying to pursue righteousness by the works of the law, when that is not how righteousness is obtained. So literally, it's a smack right in their face. And then it says, rather, through the law, we become, con we become conscious of sin. Well, for them, through the law, they, they became justified. So what does it mean to be conscious of sin? It means that you're aware now of your spiritual death, your condemnation, and the fact that you have a sin nature. You can never be acceptable to God. Never. So there's only one way to get there, and that is the way of faith. And we're going to talk about that as we go forward. So point four in our notes, this is A4. Ironically, the Gentiles were Israel's mission field. Think about it. So God created the nation Israel, his own nation, uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Israel's job was to be a priest nation to the world, the world of nations. And we'll get to some of the scriptures that talk about that very soon. So that was... That was their job, was to be a priest nation. That means they would represent God to those other nations. Or they would represent those other nations to God. They were like, that's what a priest would do. And Israel had the gospel, supposedly. <laughs> they were supposed to have the gospel. And they were supposed to give it to the Gentile nation so that they could come to know the light of God. And um, unfortunately... That didn't happen. And so, but that was what was supposed to happen. The Gentiles were Israel's mission field. Right? That, that was what was supposed to happen. But the gospel they were preaching was no gospel at all. So if we go to Galatians um, chapter 1, 
verses 6 through 10. It, this is what Paul says. This, he says, I, this is Galatians 1, 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, we could talk about a different gospel, but verse 7 clears it up. There's, there's no other gospel out there. But what he's saying is they are departing from the gospel of grace. So this different gospel, what is it? Verse 7, which is really no gospel at all. Gospel means good news. But when people tell you that you have to be under the law and that you have to work for your salvation, that is not good news. That's what he's saying. That is really no gospel at all. They have distorted the gospel into a system of works. So this is what, let's, let's continue on, because Paul is going to talk very strongly, and he's going to warn people, because this is a very serious matter. Evidently, some, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. There it is. Distort, pervert, twist. And what do you end up with when someone does that? No gospel at all. The gospel should be told exactly as it is in Scripture. We shouldn't try to dress it up. We shouldn't try to uh, dress it down. We should just tell it the way it is. And if we don't, then we are peddling no gospel at all. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. In other words, let them stand condemned. That's what he's saying. Let them be judged. Because they're already espousing a gospel that is not the true gospel. And he's saying even if an angel from heaven were to come and preach a gospel. So if someone glorious that bowls you over with his majesty and splendor, just like we saw examples where people saw angels in Scripture... What did they do? They fell over. Oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of God. And you know what the angel had to say? Oh, listen, I'm just a fellow servant just like you. Stand up on your feet. Or like Daniel. When the angel appeared to Daniel, Daniel fainted. He couldn't even stand in the presence of this angel. He, he lost, he just passed out. And so Paul is saying, even if an, we are an angel from heaven, in other words, the message you preach, that we preach, the gospel, is so, so much more important than anything else in all that you can imagine in terms of you know, splendor or glory. If it doesn't have this, then it is not of God. That's what you need to know. This gospel is God's plan to save people. And you cannot get around that. The Jews distorted the way. This happened way before Christ's time. And we're going to get to that as well. So let's keep reading. As we have already said. Now Paul, he repeats this. He says, as we have already said. And so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Paul is he's saying that they should be judged. Let them stand condemned because they are preaching a false gospel. 
and it's the one you accept. In other words, they accept the gospel of grace. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. There is a lot more that we're going to see from Galatians. Let's continue on in our notes. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Point B in our notes, One. this is 1B, or is it 2B? 2B. Gentiles rejected God's standard of holiness. They, I mean, ultimately, Gentiles were not, uh, you know, the nicest people. Right? <laughs> we're talking about people who uh, were led around by feeling and emotion, you know, that this is, in fact, a lot of this is characteristic of Gentiles in general. Jews were staunch. Uh, you know, they kept the law. They were very strict about it. They knew God showed up in their culture. They were they had signs, wonders, and miracles to demonstrate there was a history right, of God, the, the word of God, and so forth and so on. So it's a very big difference. So the Gentiles, though, rejected God's standard of holiness and therefore were running in the darkness. What, Romans, let's go to Romans to talk about that scripture. Romans 1, or that point run 1 20 through 25 says for since the creation of the world god's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse now we should know that the jew was adam was not a jew eve was not a jew the jews didn't come around for a long time in human history many years down the road, and so um, before God established them as a nation. There were people who were getting saved even before them. So God has always given a testimony to people even before the Jew came along. And and who would that be? Gentiles, you could say. There was no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Everybody was a Gentile. But until the Jew came along, then, or Israel came along, then there began to be a distinction between those who were racially Jewish or a Hebrew with those who were not. And that's where we get the term Jews and Gentiles. Actually, Gentile is ethnos, means nations, just so you know. Just throwing that out there. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. So this is very typical of what you will see of Gentile religion. So Gentiles rejected who God was, and this is what they did. They exchanged the glory of the... This is what I meant by they refused the standard of God's holiness, is they exchanged that for the worship of gods that they manufactured. That's what we call idolatry. Gods, they said, well, there's the frog. Let's make the frog God. Or there's... There's the the eagle. Let's make the eagle God. Right? They that every little everything they could think of, they did except follow God. This is their foolish hearts were darkened. They can't. They thought they were wise in what they were doing, but they became foolish or fools. Exchanged the glory of God for immortal 
sky for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who was forever praised. Amen. So this, these verses help us understand what was behind not only the Gentiles before the Jews came along. This is for all Gentiles, even now. Uh, this, they refuse, you know, but the offer of grace and God has always been there. They are without excuse, God says, or in an earlier verse. So this is what I meant by uh, that point, point B, that how they rejected God's standard of holiness. Although they knew God and his divine nature and what he was capable of and all that, they refused to worship him as God. So point C in our notes, God established, oh, I think I might have, well, no, but we'll talk about this. God established Israel to be a priest nation to all other nations. We talked about that in the earlier point where I said, ironically, Gentiles were Israel's mission field. So, but that was God's goal to create his own nation among other nations to be a priest nation, a liaison so that they would come to know who God was. So if we look at Isaiah 42, 6, I'm going to turn to these couple verses here. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. He's talking about Israel, of course. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. And notice, and delight for the Gentiles. Right. So it's like Israel is like a, a beacon of light. Uh, like a lighthouse in a dark place, you know, for ships to come. And and what is the light? They're going to show uh, who God is and what God requires of them. That was Israel's mission field, the Gentiles or the nations. So also there was another verse in 49.6, 42.6 and 49.6. What is that one? And there are more verses too, by the way. I just picked the one... Um, that I thought least hold what we we are talking about. And you could go research this. You will find that there are other, many other scriptures that talk about this. So 49.6 says, he says, it is too small a thing. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. That my here it is that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So, so you're seeing Israel's role in all of this. That God wanted to use them for this purpose. Although, <laughs> what did Israel do? Instead of being the light, they consorted with those who were in darkness. As I said, they committed spiritual adultery and all these things. So Israel has not been faithful. So they need to be reminded of who they were. So God dealt with discipline, how they had to be. Uh, many times, God, we talked about the strange act where God has to discipline his own people. Right? He has to turn the rod of discipline on his own people, which is hard for God to 
think about, but that's what happened. Point D. It says, the apostle will set up an ironic analogy between Jews and Gentiles. And we already have the first half. What's the first half? Well, that Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, right? And we already got that part. And we're getting to this part where have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. So let's deal with this. I don't see us uh, completing all of this today. But we will try to deal with point number three, and then we'll close. So the first thought is the Gentiles have obtained what the Jews coveted through the law. And how do we know that? I'm going back to Romans because that's in verse 31. It actually says that. Romans 9. Uh, so what are we depending on here, the context? It says right here, 31, but the people of Israel who pursue the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. So it's just a reminder, me, me pointing this out, that we, ought, we got to follow the context here. That's the point, right? Make sure that it, we come to conclusions that are the conclusions that Paul comes to. So the Gentiles have obtained what the Jews coveted. And the Jews sought this, the standing before God. And they couldn't get it because they never came through the door of salvation. It's like when Christ looked at Nicodemus. What did he say? He said, you got to be born again. That's the first thing we need to talk about, Nicodemus. Point B, 3B. How do the Gentiles have righteousness, right? How do they have it? Righteousness, justification, acceptance with God. What, what is their means of doing? We saw that we're going to see that, that the Jews pursued the law uh, as a way of righteousness. That's where they failed, and that's coming later. That's what the problem was. Well, how did the Gentiles do it? What was their way of pursuing God? It was by faith. And we're not only saying Gentiles. We're saying anybody who approaches God by faith. And that's point C, faith which is trusting in Jesus Christ, which is God's lamb, his propitiation, the only savior. So God offered Jesus as a solution to the bad news for us. Jesus paid for every sin we would ever commit. He's, our, he's a propitiation for our sins, but not for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That's 1 John 2, 2. So we have to know that when we put our trust in Christ, there is nothing that we have. It is literally our dependence, our reliance, our trust in Jesus Christ, his work, what, who he is, the person that he is. And what are we trusting? We're trusting the matter of our, this is point D, we're trusting or committing the matter of our soul's salvation to Christ. Now, when we say we believe in Christ, we need to make sure we understand what that means. It doesn't just mean that you believe that Christ went to the cross and died for the sins of the world. It doesn't just mean that you believe that Christ died for your sins. It doesn't mean that you believe that Christ rose from the dead. You can believe this set of facts, but it does not mean that you are saved. Believing in the person of Christ, that means you're not trying to get God's approval by the works you're doing or who you are or what your status is. You are depending on Christ 
for your status before God, for your standing before God. You, you are trusting him. So the, the issue at hand is your soul's salvation, whether or not you'll be saved or lost. And when you're saying you believe in Christ, that is saying I am that matter. That is the most important thing for every, every person that is born in Adam, lost, is that he come to the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. And they can put their faith, which means commit the matter of their soul salvation, to Christ. So it is his responsibility. If I am lost at this point, it is because Christ let me slip. It is because Christ didn't do a good job. Because I am not depending on anything else in order for my salvation. If Christ, if I'm lost, it's because God the Father's plan had holes in it. It was weak. But none of that is true. Christ is the Savior of the whole world. He proved it. He demonstrated the Father satisfied with the work of Christ on our behalf. And so, no matter what, my placing my faith in Christ automatically secures me these two things that are under point D. One is we have eternal life. We know John 3, 16 through 18 it is simply believing in Christ. Right? I'm going to read John 3, 16 through 18. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's all it takes is putting your faith, your trust, and your reliance for your soul's salvation onto Christ, onto his shoulders. Once you do that, the moment you relinquish the trust from your own works and your own goodness and your own way of salvation... The moment you put your trust in Christ, you have, you possess now eternal life. It happens in a moment of time. It is just like birth, right? You must be born again. You only can be born once. And then there's John 5, 24, which says, um, it says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, so the Father sent the Son, right? These are the results. What happens? Has eternal life. There's a result. And will not be judged, right? So you will never come to the place where God, where God will put you under condemnation again. We're already condemned, right? But believing in Christ, which we just saw, uh, lifts that condemnation, reverses it. But has, and here's the last one, but has crossed over from death to life. There are three results of believing in Christ. You have, you possess now eternal life. You will never be judged. You will not be judged. But have, and we were, have crossed over from death, that's where we position we were in, to life. So those are things that cannot be reversed. There are not things we've done for ourselves. There are things that God has done for us. So then in point number two, Right? That's the first one. We have eternal life. And then two, we have righteousness and justification. That means God has reversed the verdict 
that where he says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who do. He reversed all that and he imputes his righteousness to us. So that will, um, I think we're headed to Romans chapter 3 for that. Romans 3, verses 20 through, let's see, it's 21 through 24. Here, 21, but now, right? We, we already said we can't be righteous by doing what the law says, by the works of the law. No, no one will be righteous in God's sight. That's verse 20. But now, apart from the law, in other words, there's not even anything to do with the law. Now, that is another slap in the first face to the Jew. Because the Jew thinks that if you don't have the law, how can you be righteous? It's impossible. That's the way they think about it. But here, Paul is telling us it is apart from the law. It is apart from any good that we can do. Any obedience on our part. Any uh, acquiescence to what the law says. It has nothing whatever to do with the law. The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Why do they testify to it? Because salvation by grace was in the Old Testament. Right? Law and the prophets speak of the Old Testament scriptures. And the law and the prophets testify to salvation by grace. And we notice Abraham is the pattern, the father of salvation for all who believe. The pattern, Abraham tr believed in the Lord and was credited to him for righteousness. Way back in the Old Testament, Romans 3.22, this righteousness is given through faith. And this is, remember how the Gentiles, but the people of Israel who pursued this law, they did not pursue it in the way of righteousness. How did the Gentiles pursue it? By faith. That's how we get it. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there's another slap in the face to Jews because uh, even Gentiles can get this and they never even had the law. So obviously this, this righteousness is not dependent on the Mosaic law because Gentiles never had the Mosaic law and they can be righteous, just as righteous before God. I mean, this is what the Jews wanted from the start. They coveted it. They wanted to be right with God, on a right standing, preferred by God. And then it says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So, And then there's Romans 5.1. I have to read that. We read it last week, but here it is again. Therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, this is a past completed act of God. What do we do now? What do we think about? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we have peace with God. God's no longer looking at us as enemies, right? He's no longer looking at us as dead in our transgressions and sins. He sees us now as having peace with him. And that peace was made because we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who performed all the work necessary to save us. Point E in our notes, the Gentiles obtained it because they pursued it by faith. And we says the Gentiles here, and this is point F, Gentiles here refers to those in this church age. It does not refer to Gentiles at large, or just any Gentile, period. It's talking about people who are of the Gentile background, who never even had the law, even 
knew anything about the Mosaic Law, didn't grow up with the Jewish culture. They are all they did was believe in Christ, and guess what? They were saved. They have righteousness, and they were justified before God. They have peace with God. The very thing the Jews coveted. So it, it's, it refers to those in this church age who are certainly not under the law. And there is, and here's a quote in Romans 3.22, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. When it comes to, that's why it even in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is none. That's, these are things that we believe. And what we would say about these things is there is no wiggle room. There are no two ways about it. You can't look at this any other way. If you do, then you're going to make an error in your theology, just like the Jews did. They distorted the law and came up with a system of works that if you perform these system of works, then the standing that you have before God would be justified. You would be righteous before God. And that is incorrect. So we don't want to do that. We want to allow, uh, just like it says, that we can obtain this. The only way we're going to obtain it is by faith. So we're going to talk more about it. I know we're at the end of our time. And uh, there's a lot of scriptures here. Take some time to go over them for yourself. And see, you know, read around the scriptures. Look to see that the way we're using the scripture is the way that the scripture or the is used in the context where where it's found. So those are things to check for yourselves, to go back and do some studying and understand this point. It's a foundational point. And this is one of why I say this is because Paul is pointing out the failure that the Jews had. We already talked about uh, the judgment that is upon them. And now we're talking about why why they are receiving this judgment, because they refused to pursue this by faith when they should have. This is, I mean, this is, was a covenant with them way back. I mean, they God established salvation with them way back before, um, in early in their history. And yet, they distorted it. They became arrogant, lifted up with pride. They separated themselves from the very people that they were to witness to. They despised Gentiles, called them unclean dogs and other bad names. And these are things that happened in their history. And as a result, they were disciplined many times. Even God had to take them out as a nation uh, in discipline. And then he restored them. He always restored them because of the covenant that he made with them. So we are right in the middle of this verse, and we're going to have to continue next week. But you have, uh, you can see where I'm going. You take, take your time. You can look at all the notes. And we'll come back next week, and we'll discuss this in more detail. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. We're so privileged that you have given us these scriptures and that the clarity of them, that, that you have shown uh, the foundation uh, upon which we stand, that it is sure, that it cannot be moved. And these are things that we are proud of. 
and not of any works of ourselves, but we're proud of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for, for what he has done to be called our Savior. We're thank, thankful for the plan of salvation, which it, it is complete, it is sure. And we can know that if we do put our faith in Christ, that we will have eternal life. We will never be judged. And we have crossed over from death to life. We thank you for the scriptures, the testimony that uh, is about us. And we pray that these verses in Romans 9 would be perspicuous, that others will come to understand that this is what you are saying in these verses and uh, that we will uh, allow God, the Holy Spirit, to lead and guide us into all truth. All this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.